E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Esther Mobley, the wine writer of the San Francisco Chronicle on the show today. Hello, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Very nice to see you. You too. So you're originally from Massachusetts, but you worked at the Wine Spectator in their New York office for three years. That's right. Yeah, before I came to the Chronicle. I started off at Wine Spectator as Tom Matthews' assistant. Tom's the executive editor. So I started off in a role there that several other people had held before me who were still at Wine Spectator. You start off answering his phone, opening his mail, making his lunch reservations, but The hope was that in time, you would become an editor. It was meant to be a kind of grooming role. And I took full advantage of that. And as I got more comfortable there, started pitching stories to other editors at the magazine and seeing where I could kind of insert myself. After about eight months or so, someone left and I became an assistant editor What's the pitch process look like at The Spectator? If you wanted to pitch to an editor, what would you do? I kind of had to figure this out on my own, but people claim beats. So in addition to the core beats, which are tasting beats, and Bruce Sanderson covers Burgundy, and when there's news in Burgundy, Bruce is most likely going to write it. There's someone who's covering auctions, and there's someone who's covering environmental issues around wine, and there's someone who's covering wine fraud. When I was at Wine Spectator was when the Rudy Kurniawan story was unfolding in the trial, and that was a really exciting thing. And so I actually figured out early on, I had to identify a few things that no one else was covering already, which meant that they were like the least interesting things. One thing, for instance, that I started covering really early on there was wine and health. And whenever a new study was coming out that said wine causes breast cancer, no, wine cures breast cancer, etc., I was just trying to write that story, whatever it took. Um, when news hit, when there's actually something time-sensitive, something just happened, uh, Mitch Frank is the news editor. And Typically, if you were the first staff member to point out the news, you got to write it. And then there's a world of features. 
the big meaty pieces in the later parts of the magazine. And that's what I wanted to write. I wanted to write profiles. I wanted to write feature stories going deep into something. In addition to having to pitch those, the magazine is usually sending you somewhere to write those. So that took a little longer for me to convince them, like, pay for me to go out to California and profile a winemaker in California. And that was that was what really interested me. That was what I wanted to be doing. That interested you because that was an opportunity to travel somewhere new, because it was an opportunity to do long-form writing, or because you wanted to meet people who you were going to be profiling? I suppose all of the above, but mostly I wanted to write deep stories. I felt, for the most part, at Wine Spectator like I was kind of biding my time until I could do something more interesting there, which seemed available. It felt as if if I stuck around long enough, I would get a tasting beat and I would be covering the wines of a region and I would get to travel to that region and really try to understand it. And I would understand the wines and the styles of all the producers and really dig my teeth into that and write stories that felt rewarding and longer form. And I I never actually climbed high enough on the ladder there to get to that point, but I saw that it was possible. I remember an escalator and then an elevator <laughs> at the Wine Spectator office, but you're saying that there was a ladder. Actually, the new building, which we moved from Park Avenue South to 8th Avenue while I was there, and um, it's got a, quite a complicated elevator system. You have to like pre-program the floor you're going to go to. Well, at least the new office has a pretty cool tasting room and there's probably some wine around. That was the great privilege of working there, truly, access to the wines that were being tasted every day. The New York office is where all European wine is being tasted and South American wine. And the tasters would be going through their flights every day. And a flight might be 20 to 25 wines of a similar type. So typically one region, one vintage. And the opportunity to go in at the end of every day and taste through a flight of 20 Volnays from the 2012 vintage. I mean, I certainly would never have gotten access to tasting those wines. And not only that, but then you actually get the taster there. You get to ask their impression and try to understand this clot and try to understand the vintage and try to understand why is this producer different from that one. And that was my wine education. So the thing about The Spectator, for me, looking from the outside, is that it seems to really combine lifestyle with wine mm -hmm. in a very successful meld, at least for advertising and for readership. Did you find yourself writing about lifestyle pieces as well? I would say I wrote mostly about lifestyle pieces at Wine Spectator. So when I was an assistant editor there, I was in charge of a few of the sections in the grapevine, the shorter, zippier pieces before you get to the features. So for instance, I was in charge of the collecting page where we would report on wine collecting auctions and stuff. We would profile a collector who had built a beautiful cellar in his or her home and talk about the verticals of Latosh they kept. 
I had the wine and design page where we talked about kitchen design. So, you know, I could have been writing for any number of lifestyle magazines. I think those pages in the magazine are also ones that allow you to speak in a different register to readers. They're not the hardcore tasting reports that speak in more of a jargon, expect a kind of higher level of understanding from readers. So my hope is that those kinds of pieces could be an entry point, not only for me as a writer, but also for readers into the world of wine. Has some of that stayed with you now? Now I write for a completely different audience. I think Wine Spectator readers, you can expect, have some level of interest and understanding in wine. I can't expect that of a person picking up the San Francisco Chronicle. You can't even necessarily expect they're interested in food. So I'm constantly conscious of how my language could alienate readers, how my topics could alienate readers. And I think it's really difficult. It continues to be difficult for me to figure out how to speak at a level that's sophisticated, that does justice to my subjects, and that people like you, people who know a lot about wine, could find interesting. Not knowing you super well and having only read your pieces, I think the way that you tend to do that is to personalize it. You look for a personal story and you look for ways of setting a tone and atmosphere in that story with a lot of details. It seems to me like you probably take a lot of quotes and then find where some of those are going to fit in and then have a lot of spare material that you use as atmosphere. It's almost like B-roll for video. That's certainly true of my process. And I would say most of my stories, I spend the better part of a day at least with a subject. If you add up multiple interviews or just spending a full day with someone, which is frankly how I do most of my reporting. And then the constraints of newsprint are such that I have maybe a thousand to fifteen hundred words. There's inevitably more than I can contain. It's actually a bit of a joke with my editors that I write too long and have too much excess material. They're gracious enough now to really not cut me, but at the beginning, I would hand in excessively long pieces and they always needed to be cut by 500 words, 1,000 words. Now, I think I've earned space in my almost three years there now, and they allow me actually to write longer pieces, and they know to expect it from me. But being concise is a goal I always have in mind, and my tendency at one point was to, I think, kind of over-report. And I, I think that's, in some ways, a function of having less confidence in myself at one point in the past. But I actually report less now than I used to. I used to make way too many phone calls and have interviews with people that were never even alluded to in my pieces. And I think I have a stronger sense now of how to target my preparation and my reporting. But inevitably, there's always more, much more material than I can ever use. So, you know, we skipped the part where you transitioned to another employment. But following up on what you just said, that's interesting to me because when I read your pieces, I think, wow, 
this would take so long to write it this way because I did writing at 1.2. And so I'm somewhat aware of what the time spend would be. I mean, everyone has a different capability for writing, but I look at what's on the page and the kind of details that are in there. Like, for instance, the Joe Rocchioli Jr. piece where you talk about riding on the carriage and buggy with the harness. Like, so that probably wouldn't find its way into many other pieces. In fact, I never saw that detail anywhere else, but it probably took a while to get that detail. And then it goes into the piece, you know, it goes by quickly, but it really sets a tone for what it was like when he grew up and how that's different now, which was kind of that piece. So it helps prove that point. But I mean, how long does it take you to write a piece? Because for me to do that, I'm looking at a lot of time for me. It takes a long time. And the longer you spend reporting, the longer you spend then kind of compiling your notes and the longer you spend sifting through it and the longer it takes ultimately to write it on the page. It totally varies. Um, When I'm writing a profile of someone, I guess what we'd call a single source story, like Joe Rocchioli, I spent a day with Joe at his winery and that's an easy one logistically. You just have to get one person to clear his schedule for a certain amount of time. When I'm working on a a profile with a winemaker, one of the things I really like to do is say, can we spend a day together and go to some of your vineyards? And part of it is that I want to see the vineyards and understand the place and, of course, taste some wine and see how that person interacts with it. The actual reason I love that, though, is because the best interviews you always get with someone are in the car. It's that downtime when they're not on, they're not pointing out the soil structure of the vineyard, that they really open up. And when you've spent actually a long period of time together and you start to become more comfortable, I seek that out, those moments of candor, when we've kind of initially covered the bases. So to answer the question of how long it takes, to get that level of conversation takes a really long time. But I work on my pieces pretty far out. I'll always have a few pieces I'm working on at any given time, but from the time I start working on it until the time it sees print, it's usually a couple of months. You're talking about it like it's a single source profile, and I understand why you would say that. But reading the piece, I mean, it rarely seems about one thing. For example, you have certain themes that you return to. So like Maria Echevarria piece, that piece is about her as a profile, but really that's about immigration and California migrant labor. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And that's sort of a theme that comes up in the Joe Rocchioli piece, because mm-hmm. that's about Italian immigration to a place that's changed a lot in the meantime. And here we are in the Trump era, and I don't think you're just doing profiles. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That's how it feels to me, certainly, is that these stories unlock larger ideas that we interact with in our world. That's what I love about wine. I think it tells the story of so much. As an outsider to California, that's what I love about California wine and writing about it, that it tells you about the history of a place, it tells you about the land in a really fascinating, deep way, tells you about groups of people. And right now, labor and immigration are themes 
that are affecting all of our lives in California that the Chronicle is covering from a number of different perspectives. And wine is a perfect entry point to some of them. For instance, Full Metal Jacket, that's an anti-war movie, right? Right. Right. How conscious are you that when you write a profile of someone like Maria Echevarria that you're writing a piece about Margaret Feimlater? Very conscious. And my editors are conscious, and my editors are reminding me of it, and we're talking about those pieces in the context of the Chronicle's larger mission to cover immigration issues in California. And I'm talking to my colleague, Hamed, who covers immigration in the Metro Department. And I'm talking to a colleague in the Business Department who's covering ag issues. And we're viewing it as different ways to get at the same core story. The Maria Echevarria piece and a piece that ran in the same day in the paper, actually, about another vineyard worker named Maria Busio, those were part of over six months project that we undertook starting in, let's say, the spring of 2017. We thought, okay, it's the Trump era. The Chronicle on the whole was making a commitment to covering these issues. And I had been wanting to talk about labor issues in the wine industry to a greater degree for much longer because as anyone working in the California wine industry knows, it's been one of the biggest stories for their daily lives, alongside maybe only water, nearly as much, since long before Trump. I mean, it transcends politics in terms of its importance for the California wine industry right now. But suddenly, there were a lot more resources available for me to spend longer on this piece. And I was really trying to embed myself deeply with a few different women who worked in vineyards for a long period of time. Those stories took much longer than I had ever imagined. Other themes that you seem to return to a lot are affordability, generational change, Mm -hmm. the environment, and a sense of branding. And then I would say one that I don't know how conscious that it is, so I guess I would ask you, is a sense of miscommunication between different sectors of a society. So you'll, for instance, talk about how cult cabernets don't resonate with younger people. And you could write that piece a lot of different ways, but I think the one that you highlight is that there's these two groups that aren't really communicating. Hmm. And I think you follow that through even to like restaurant reviews. You did the Barkren yeah. <laughs> one. And to me, it just sounded like you thought it was a miscommunication with the audience. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. I wouldn't have articulated it that way, but I appreciate that because I think that's right. I'm sensitive to things that are tone deaf, especially where people's money is so much at stake. When you're charging $850 for a bottle of Cabernet, or in the case of my experience recently at Bar Cren, over $400 for a few glasses of wine and a light bites at a wine bar. First of all, I think you're, you're inviting a deeper form of criticism when you're charging that much. But I also think, to me, thinking about how I experience wine and restaurants and my life and how my peers and my friends experience it, it actually, it's a profound disconnect, a profound miscommunication 
that I think becomes like a real problem. I don't know if miscommunication captures it. Something that happens in a larger culture that kind of comes up a lot these days is like siloing. So, mm. you know, there's these different groups and they don't really talk to each other. And some people listen to Sean Hannity and other people listen to somebody else and they don't really get along. And I just wonder if that is, is sometimes on your mind. I can't expect that my readers are just going to immediately meet me in this wine-centric world where we understand inherently the value of an estate-grown, historic Napa Cabernet, where they immediately know why Harlan is a sought-after wine, and where I, I can expect that they might have a few bottles of it in their cellar or or want to have a few bottles of it in their cellar. So if, if 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 part of what you mean is that there's there there's certain writing that kind of takes for granted uh, acceptance of that, I just think I'm writing for a, quite a broad audience, and I understand why Spotswood costs one hundred fifty dollars a bottle. I understand why Harlan costs eight hundred fifty dollars a bottle, but I can't expect that my readers will all meet me there. And I have to actually do a little more work to lay the groundwork. I guess what I'm really leading into is less that. I get that you're writing for a general audience, but what I'm asking you, I guess, in several different ways is, do you consider yourself a political writer under the guise of cultural criticism? Mm. And the answer could be no, but I'm just curious what you say. The answer is no. I don't see myself as a political writer. I hope that my writing sometimes, in some types of stories, accesses themes like politics. And I certainly would like to think of myself as a cultural critic. I think I'm critiquing much more than just what a wine in a glass tastes like when I am practicing criticism, which I don't think I am in every single story I write. But to me, wine is political. Many facets of it are. Again, not every story I write. But where that theme is present, I hope that I am able to take advantage of it. That's absolutely my goal. Well, I think that's a very fair answer. So just to move back a little bit and talk about the segue from New York to California. I mean, you've already said that half of your method is dependent on cars. <laughs> so I guess that would get you out of New York City. Yeah. But in a way, I see a through line in that it seems to me that the Wine Spectator did a pivot where they hired a lot of millennial aged writers and assistants to work there in the last few years. Yeah. And it seems like you've brought some of that millennial voice into the Chronicle and they were probably, I don't know, maybe looking for something similar. How do you see it? I think the Chronicle was certainly looking for a younger voice. And given the hiring patterns of other roles at the Chronicle since I've been there, I can see that bringing in younger people and younger voices is a priority company-wide. So to that degree, certainly. I think Wine Spectator gave me a real credibility. They knew that if I had worked at Wine Spectator, I knew wine. and. I, I'm really grateful to Wine Spectator for kind of backing me up on that. 
I just want to be clear that by pointing out you're young, I'm not questioning your expertise. I just want to be clear about that. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I see my youth as having been an advantage in this case, absolutely. And I think, although I had worked a harvest in Napa Valley and had spent time in California, I think probably being an outsider to California wine was an advantage for me also. I'm sure that appealed to the Chronicle. And I think I wasn't an established voice before coming to the Chronicle in that I was known for privileging one type of wine or or anything. I think I was kind of malleable still. My identity as a critic was yet to be established. So three years in, how do you look at it? I'm interested primarily in storytelling. And sometimes that's a profile of a person. Sometimes that's coverage of a political issue, like we're dealing in Napa with this debate over Measure C, and it's bringing up a lot of old ghosts in the attic about land use and how Napa Valley should be. That is a story to me on so many levels. It goes deep. It's about a small town struggling to become a big town. It's about a kind of preservation pitted against development. It's about old timers resenting newcomers. It's about how do you keep a place that depends on tourism for being bucolic, bucolic. That's the sort of thing I'm interested in. And to that extent, what doesn't interest me is saying only this style of wine is good, all wine like this is bad. To some degree, I'm not even that interested in saying whether wine is good or bad. I think there's a service to readers that I I hope to provide, but that's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. What gets me out of bed is uncovering these weird paradoxes and places with funny histories. And that kind of transcends styles or what's cool. I don't know if that's a kind of neat encapsulation of a writer's identity, but that's what drives me. Actually, The New Yorker is a a good example. I don't know what writer in my position wouldn't say she admires the work being done in The New Yorker today. But I open up The New Yorker that arrives in my mailbox every week, and I want to read the stories in it not because I'm necessarily interested in any of the subject matter. If there happens to be a story on a subject I'm interested in, awesome. But I want to read the story that ran a couple months ago about the stink bugs by Katherine Schultz simply because I know it's going to be well-written and is going to delve deeply into some topic I wouldn't have otherwise come across. That's what I want my, my writing to be. I want someone who hasn't just totally studied wine and would read anything that comes out about wine just because it's about wine to find these things interesting, because I genuinely think they are interesting. Does that mean that the wine writer for the San Francisco Chronicle can't take for granted that people are necessarily going to be interested in wine? I guess the San Francisco Chronicle has the luxury of operating at a slightly higher level of expected understanding from its readers than many newspapers in the country would be, simply because I think you can expect that the average San Francisco Bay Area resident knows something about food and wine, 
goes occasionally to visit Napa and Sonoma wine country, eats at some of these restaurants. I mean, I think we actually have a pretty sophisticated population here. I didn't actually mean it as like a challenging thing. It's mm. more just like, oh my gosh, because I came up in the 90s. And in the 90s, there was just a ton of interest in wine. Like people just had a lot of interest in wine, like regular people. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, wine per capita consumption in the United States was growing like 5 6% in the mid-90s every year. And now it's like half a percent, a right. percent, maybe even a little bit down. And I just wonder if this is a manifestation of that. I guess my whole life I've mm. just kind of assumed mm. that you can take people being interested in wine, general people. I mean, obviously some people don't drink. Some people aren't into it. Some people drink cocktails or beer. But I just always thought you could kind of take it for granted that a lot of people would be interested in wine. And maybe slightly I'm hearing here, maybe for the first time to me, I mean, I live in my wine mm. little world bubble, right? Like everyone I know likes wine. I hang out with wine people. But maybe for a general interest publication, I can't just take that for granted if I were to work for them. I don't know. I don't think you can take it for granted that everyone who reads the San Francisco Chronicle knows about wine. And um, maybe I'm taking that mandate more extremely than I should. I get something of a reality check from my colleagues. I mean, my editors know food and wine deeply, of course. But other colleagues at the paper, especially if a story's going in the metro section, not in the food section, and another set of eyes who's not the food editor is looking at it, it's a good reality check. Certain terms I thought I could use, I can't use freely without explanation. Grand Marc, I was referring to Champagne. What's that mean? Right bank. What's that? So certain terms that at Wine Spectator you could throw around freely, I learned, okay, you can't just say Grand Marc Champagne. You have to explain what that means. So that's a meaningful test to see, will the editors get it? Then will my readers get it? So your editors are Kitty Morgan and Paula Lucchese. Yeah, and they know food and wine. They they know it deeply. So Paula Lucchese started a Chronicle in 2010, and Kitty Morgan started in 2013, and then you started in 2015. And do you see an evolution at the Chronicle in that time? Like, do you look back at old pieces that were written at the Chronicle by maybe Linda Murphy or W. Gray or John Bonet and think that you see a transition of some sort? Yes, there's been a lot of changes. At one time, there was a whole dedicated wine section. At another time, the food and wine section ran several times a week. There's all kinds of other little behind-the-scenes changes that have happened. At one time, we had a full dedicated test kitchen staff. All they did was work in the test kitchen, and we had this rooftop garden where they kept bees and there's still like a first aid kit about what happens if one of the bees <laughs> gets to you. Like there are no bees there anymore. Um, so I certainly see that there's been a shift from what was much more locally focused. Um, our focus is always on the Bay Area and why shouldn't it be? We have, to me, just this incredible bounty of things to cover here. But um, we actually could have an international audience because of the internet, because people can read our stories who don't have to get the paper delivered. So Paolo became the food editor just as I was hired. So 
I had never worked for a different section editor than him. But he's he's much more serious about how our section responds to national issues, how we can be at the forefront of national issues for food and drinks. He's very news-focused. He is dogged about covering the news. And that was his background. He was really like hitting the pavement as our kind of restaurant news reporter before he became the food editor. And he is also very dedicated to covering social issues surrounding food. The darker side of what this all means. And we've been writing essays about what it means to cover restaurants whose owners have been accused of major sexual misconduct. And we've actually written essays disagreeing with each other within the department about those issues. I'm proud to be a part of that larger enterprise. And we get emails from readers saying, we wish you would have more Joyce Goldstein recipes running. And we still do run recipes. We still have a test kitchen. But I think the tenor of our stories has shifted. And I'm on board with that. It seemed to me like there was a big voice change from Linda Murphy to John Bonet later. And would you consider that there's a voice change happening now? Or Yes, totally. I think John really brought a kind of new spotlight to the Chronicle as a wine publication in a really important way that I'm sure I benefit from. But my voice is, is different from his. There's definitely been a shift in that. And my voice is, is my voice. It's not Paolo's voice. It's not Kitty's voice. They really let me express myself. But for instance, John left the Chronicle and then I didn't come on board for about another six months. So during that time, they contracted with him to provide a monthly wine column, even after he had left. And that continued for several months after I had started. And so there was a time when when his and my stories were both running alongside each other in the Chronicles for maybe about six months. And the differences in our voices were fine. They were welcomed. Oh, yeah. I'm not thinking that you're having a fight or something. I just wonder what you think that they are. I can't speak for how John sees his own writing, but how I see our voices as different. I see him as having really inhabited a kind of way of criticism that I might call advocacy. He, as I read him, had a kind of thing he wanted to champion in a lot of ways. And I don't mean to say that he covered that unfairly in any way, but I mean, the way he coined a term, New California, and was celebrating that as a good way forward, and was celebrating producers that he saw as falling in that. I mean, that's, that is a way to be a critic. And I don't think I'm doing that. Part of it is that I'd like to think I actually have a palette that can appreciate a true range of different styles. And I actually truly, really like wines at really opposite ends of the spectrum. But, you know, John had a top 100 wines every year. I'm not doing that. Um, I think there's also a way in which I'm not 
going out on a limb as much to kind of champion certain wines. When I read some of your pieces, it seems like you're trying to cover some bigger brand expressions of wine, like your Wagner piece comes to mind, Mm -hmm. talking about Mayomi. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that you are championing those wines, but you're taking a look at what's going on. And I think you're maybe dialing back again from the economic side of it, which you mentioned earlier as being part of your thinking, to say like, okay, this is a big sector and there's probably some interest in what's going on. And so what is going on? When Joe Wagner took Mayomi, which a brand that had not existed even six, seven years before, sold it for $315 million with no physical assets, no land, no winery, nothing, just the rights to use a brand. That is fascinating to me. I mean, that is like, whoa. And to me, it signaled this new moment. I mean, it didn't even have a vineyard associated with it. It didn't even have him really associated with it. I mean, it did nominally for like a few months. He was going to have to go in and consult, quote unquote. But that story, and I, you know, I got a lot of emails from readers afterward being like, you like Mayomi? Well, I, I don't like Mayomi. I, it's like 3% Gewurztraminer and it, it's not dry and it's not a wine I particularly enjoy. But the story is one that I, was fascinated by. And it's disappointing to me if we can't live with that sort of a nuance, that every wine I write about implies a kind of championing of it. Sometimes I'm writing about something because I want to kind of complicate how we look at it. And it's not that I loved the wines. I mean, that's kind of what I read when I read you. It actually rewards close reading, which isn't something a lot of people Mm. say about wine writing. That's not the first (laughs) thing that people say about most wine writing. It's like, if you read this twice, you may notice a nuance that you didn't notice the first time. That's like an underlying theme. And it seems like part of the goal. Definitely. And I wrote a story in the fall of 2017 about Costa Brown. There was a news hook in there, which was that both Costa and Brown, were leaving. And they'd sold the brand a couple of times, actually, by then. And they were leaving, and it was in the hands of new people, well, people who had been working there already. But they were also trying to reposition themselves as no longer the big, oaky, Russian River, overblown, 15% alcohol Pinot. And that was fascinating to me. I mean, here is this brand that was made successful by really being the face of a whole era of Pinot Noir style in California. And suddenly it was pivoting away. And there's this anecdote in which the winemaker, Nico Cueva, had told me that a sommelier in New York had known what Jolie Laid was, but hadn't known what Costa Brown was. And it's like, whoa, Jilly Lade's like this weird hipster upstart brand and Costa Brown is this institution. And so the story was, well, I don't know whether I thought it was flattering to Costa Brown or not. That wasn't my concern. I at least thought it was complicated. And I certainly didn't think it was like a 
big celebration of the Costa Brown wines. And I get a bouquet of flowers as soon as it comes out. And sometimes I'm like, did anyone read this? I mean, I guess any press is good press, but sometimes I'm, I'm not, well, I'm glad to hear you, you read the nuances because I intend these things to be nuanced and I have nuanced feelings about the wines and the wineries that I cover. Another example is this debate that's unfolding in Napa Valley right now over Measure C, which would curb vineyard development in the hillsides. I had a big, meaty piece about that and how it was dividing the wine industry. And I had voices from people like Randy Dunn, who are super pro Measure C, meaning they are against cutting down any more trees to plant vineyards and hillsides. And I had voices of people like Mike Davis, who's actively trying to cut down trees on Howell Mountain to plant a vineyard. And to me, the story was the kind of crazy tension of that. And afterward, both sides, I mean, both Randy and Mike and other people interviewed are like, thank you for the story. Like, this is how we hoped it would come across. Well, I don't care how you hoped it would come across, but people see what they want to see, I guess. California for me is a real landmine for that because I think there's a lot of workshop storytelling about branding. Yeah. They've edited the branding story very often. Right. And I'm sure that that's true in other cultures too. And maybe I'm less sensitive to it because I didn't grow up in that culture. So it's less obvious to me or because, you know, when your winery is next to like an old Roman wall, it does seem like you have history that you're not just creating. (laughs) Right. And It's such a component of California wine that I have to kind of put up some boundaries for myself when I come out here. And I just wonder how you feel about that. Well, um, you know how I feel then. It's very frustrating to me to feel like there are middlemen in between me and my subjects trying to shape how a story is told. That sounds naive to say because I know that publicists have existed for a long time It's very tricky when you are a writer and a journalist and you're trying to get to a story and you feel like there's some force that's trying to kind of either shape it or keep you from getting to it. I mean, I always assume people are like fudging things, not everyone, but a lot of people, like their production volume, how much wine they produce. And that frustrates me to no end because I want to say, if you tell me you produce more wine and it's good, that makes me want to write about it more if more of my readers can get it. I mean, super low production wine is like not really interesting to me. Things like that, I think people are kind of constantly, I'm assuming there's a narrative device, you know, I'm assuming there's some massaging of story in a lot of cases when I visit a lot of wineries. And so how do you react to that? What do you do? Like, I think some people kind of come in more brash. Like, do you know who I am? I'm the wine (laughs) critic. You know what I mean? It seems to me like you would rather not. And I think that that's probably why you tease out some real nuances from people and profiles is because they feel like they can just talk to you. Like, you don't bring a big thing into the car with you. But how do you see it? Like, what do you do actively? I want to be polite and go through every day with 
positive exchanges with people. It's unpleasant for me otherwise. And certainly some of it is kind of self-serving in that I want to have positive, pleasant exchanges with people so that I get good interviews out of them and they want to talk to me. If my story offends someone, that's fine. In a way, I'm I'm happy for it too. It affirms that I'm not just regurgitating what someone told me. It's never my goal to offend someone. And readers like good news. That's something we've learned too. The idea of just being combative for the sake of kind of proving that you're capable of writing something negative or being critical, I actually don't think that gets you that far. I think readers can see through when it's negative just for the sake of being negative. That said, I really think that I can be a more effective journalist if people want to be around me and want to talk to me. Part of what I'm trying to do here is be someone people will come to with stories when they are going to sell, when they have big news, when something's happening. I actually want them to want to talk to me about it. People can tell when you're connecting with them or not and when you're trying to connect with them or not. And I think they can tell when you just want to get a quick answer out of them to get a good quote or when you're really trying to understand what they're doing here. And I want to do that too. That makes for a better day in my life to have connected with a person and trying to get a little sense of why they're here and what drives them. So that's genuine. I mean, wanting to try to understand someone's perspective, what brought them here, why they bought a vineyard in a weird place where it's hard to farm grapes. Part of getting a good interview out of that is a sense genuinely that I'm, I'm there. I'm like present. I'm trying to get it. With you, though, I just wonder if wine is actually the most important thing. Hmm. Hmm. In my life or in my writing? No, I'm just talking about your professional work. Like, I have no idea about your life. I'm just talking about your work. Like, I wonder if that's the most interesting thing to you, wine, or it's fine if it's not. It's not a challenge. It's really a question. The wine itself, like what the wine tastes like, you mean? Just wine is a topic. Huh. Like, (laughs) because, you know, you bring in a lot of other topics. Yeah. You know, I think Gerald Asher is as smart as you (laughs) and as good as a writer. But when I read a Gerald Asher piece, you know, it's about wine. Yeah. But I think that often yours have cross currents in them Mm -hmm. that are interesting to you. And so I just wonder if really wine is, I mean, I I understand that it's useful to you as a lens Hmm. and it brings up a lot of things. I just wonder if you really deeply love wine. And that's fine if you don't. We can still be friends (laughs) and everything. I just wonder if it's like the most important thing to you. I do really deeply love wine and I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't. To the extent that it is a lens for me to view more than just wine, that is 100% true. And when I see some of my friends who I think just dream in wine, um, I guess that's not me. Um, William Kelly, who's the newest reviewer for The Wine Advocate, is a friend of mine. And he lives and breathes old Burgundy vintages in a way that I don't think my mind has the capacity for. And I Well, I don't think you should sell yourself short on stuff like that. I think you're really smart. I just want that to be clear. I'm not saying that you're... 
I'm not taking it that way. It's not that I don't think my mind is smart enough to retain old burgundy vintage characteristics. I guess I'm saying I'm not interested in that level of it. And I love wine. I won't even defend that because it's just true for me. But I think what I love most about wine as I'm writing about it at this stage of my life, and this might be true at a different stage of my life when, for instance, I can afford different types of wine and am not writing about it all day and I'm not tasting big flights that kind of in some ways take the fun out of drinking wine. I think that's possible for a, a different form of my life. I think what I do love most about wine right now is how it's telling me other stories about California and about where we live. And I do see it as a useful vehicle for talking about other things. And I, I love it for that. And I also think my relationship to wine would probably be different if I were writing for another wine publication that got more in the weeds on rating wines or producing tasting notes or giving vintage reports. But I think the way my job, my position kind of allows me to write about wine actually forces me to experience wine in a different way. So how do you think you've changed in a writer since you took the job at the Chronicle to now? Like looking back, what's the development been? Where my tendency once maybe was to be a little more flowery with my sentence structure and my word choices, I think I've, I've kind of become more spare. And that's the effect, too, of writing for a newspaper where you tend to have short sentences and short paragraphs and a lot of kind of plain clothes words. So I appreciate that, and I, I'm proud of that evolution in myself as a writer. But that's not the only thing that's changed. I think I've become a much more acute taster since coming here. And in a way, that's funny because at Wine Spectator, I was probably tasting more wine, writing fewer tasting notes, certainly. I didn't write any tasting notes at Wine Spectator. Now I do. But part of it is also I'm, I'm a bit of an island now on my own as a wine writer. If I say a wine tastes like something, there's no one else at the Chronicle who's going to say you were wrong about that. So it's forced me to kind of take more of a stand on what I think constitutes a good wine and a bad wine. It's forced me to develop a more of an identity as a taster. So you take a lot of notes and then you distill it down into a piece. The question I have is, over that period of time, has what you kind of look for as the narrative of a piece changed? Do you distill differently now than you did when you started? Over time, have you kind of like sharpened your scissors and been like, this is really what I'm looking for? Or how does it work? Yeah. So the story is taking shape as I'm interviewing and reporting. And frequently, it's not the story I expected to find. How often does that happen? Well, to a small degree, every time. How often are you talking to someone and you're like, well, I have that material for that piece I want to write. And then they say something that totally changes the course of that piece. The story always reveals itself to me as I'm talking to people. And frequently, it's not the story that someone 
wants to get across. This goes back to what we were saying earlier about the ways in which people are very brand conscious here. But all the time, I discover something new that I didn't know existed before I started the piece. Part of it is allowing the kind of course of my day with someone to shape my preconceived notions of what this story is going to be and being open to seeing new things. And, oh, do you want to just go see that one vineyard, even though it's a little out of our way, saying yes to that in case I discover something there. And it seems like you've made a point to try to find some stories that weren't well reported previously. I live for that or weren't reported at all. Um, I am seeking those. And when it's news, I'm trying really hard to be the only person who writes it or the first person who writes it. When it's a feature or a, a place, I'm trying to get there in a way that no one else has before. And sometimes, for instance, I really wanted to write a profile on Alder Springs Vineyard in Mendocino County. To me, that was such a great story because the guy who owns it had founded the wine cooler brand and then he planted this totally kooky vineyard and there's these bizarre grape varieties that really aren't planted elsewhere. And it's become this little gem in the middle of nowhere. There are no well-known vineyards surrounding it, but producers are making amazing wine from it and unusual wine and original wine. And I was like planning to go up there and then Eric Asimov came out with a story in the Times. And so I scrapped that idea. But then I'd like to think I've kind of gotten in to some places that people haven't gotten into. The Evangelo Vineyard in Contra Costa County, this incredible old vineyard in a kind of weird suburban Bay Area. Amtrak train basically almost runs through it. PG&E owned the land and took out all these vines at one point. And there's a whole history there with the mafia during Prohibition. And um, I'm seeking out these places that have not been featured before. But it seems like they have to have a few boxes checked for you to want to do it. Those are not single topics. Like you want a few different things that are interesting to you. Yeah, yeah. You want to do CinemaScope. You want Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia. You're not looking for eight millimeter. Right, right. I'm not looking to simply write that the new vintage of Screaming Eagle is great. I'm not looking to even simply write that the new vintage of Napa was great. I think I tend to think that my readers can get that information elsewhere. But yes, I would say it's not just that those things check off different boxes. It's that they are deeply stories. They have all the elements of a great story with tension and character and unexpected turns and resolution and conflict. And a story can be a story in a lot of different ways, but I am looking for a story. And a vintage report isn't always. Sometimes the 2017 vintage will be a story, but it's not always a story. I think one of the tensions that has been for a long time in California wine is, is it about the person or is it about the place? Should it be about the specifics of Carneros or should it be about Lee Hudson? 
we're so young as a wine region everywhere here that the land is being so shaped by individual people by a single generation in many cases, maybe two, maybe in a few cases, three generations of people that we're just seeing their vision for what a certain place could be for wine. I mean, the way we've kind of so quickly determined that Napa is a place for Cabernet and parts of Sonoma are a place for Pinot Noir is an example of that, right? Those are just a half a century's worth of decision-making. You just did a piece about Cabernet in the Fort Ross Seaview area. I think it's a very good example of, well, it doesn't all have to be Pinot, but I think something that we've also seen is that these waves have come through of replanting that have to do with market presence because there's no law to keep certain grape varieties in the ground. It is true that California has more freedom, but also maybe the ability to be a little more finicky with what's planted where because of the lack of Appalachian laws. And I guess I would hope that we don't write the history of any one region too soon. And that was one of the points I was trying to make in the Fort Ross Seaview Cabernet, especially because there has been Cabernet in Fort Ross Seaview basically as long as there have been wine grapes in Fort Ross Seaview. It's this fallacy to think that the region was always only Pinot Noir. And the Bohan Vineyard, which was planted in 1972, they gave everything a shot there. And they still have Zinfandel on the ground. And it's not even as if now the Fort Ross Seaview is all one thing or Sonoma is all one thing. What do you see some of the key structural realities of California winemaking and the wine business being going forward? The mergers and acquisitions story is a big one here, especially because we're now at a moment when a lot of parents, people who founded a wine brand in the 70s, are getting to the point where they're no longer able to do it anymore and their kids maybe don't want to. That's a common refrain we're hearing. That's was the case for Josh Jensen, who just sold Calera to Duckhorn, for instance. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that, the family wineries being gobbled up by Constellation and Gallo and other larger wine companies. And that's an interesting thing, especially because we have such a distrust, kind of immediate suspicion of those who sell out. And I can't quite figure out to what extent that's deserved or not. I mean, I that's my impulse too. It's like, oh, now it's just like part of a big corporation. You know, maybe not necessarily. That is a huge one. Climate change is a big question for California. We're already kind of on the warmer side of growing certain Vitis vinifera grapes. And I don't mean to sound apocalyptic, but I don't know whether Napa Valley will be able to grow Cabernet 50, 75 years from now if temperatures continue to rise the way they do, to say nothing of the possibility of other crazy natural disasters here. So I think that's a big question, and that's forcing grape growing into different areas too. Looking back at the history of California, do you think that there was splits in a road where the wrong road was taken? Do you think that some of the current problems that we're looking at were set in motion before and could have been prevented at that time? 
just as the 1968 Agricultural Preserve was a kind of major decision point for Napa where they said, we're not going to allow commercial and residential development in this land. It's too precious for that. People point at things like the 1989 Winery Definition Ordinance that allowed the definition of a winery to include its marketing activities and that in some ways has allowed Napa Valley to become as tourist-centric as it seems today. People have been pointing to that as like a moment when everything went off the rails or the hillside ordinance in Napa where anything over a 30% grade just can't be planted on at all. And in many ways, we can see those things as having contributed to the kind of extraordinary price of land there, of the extraordinary cost of planting a vineyard there and having a winery there. And then the fact that the only people to whom starting a winery in Napa is now available are people who are already wealthy. They're not vignerons. I think those are two examples. So something we talked about earlier in the interview was when two groups maybe don't communicate well with each other. And I wonder, with that lens, which I think you seem to be able to identify quite well when that's happening, are there ways that California wine and California wineries could communicate better with the general consumer at this moment? I don't know that I know the answer to that. And part of that is because what I try to access when I'm profiling, writing about, interviewing wineries, and what I think my readers want to see is also one of the kind of PR buzzwords of today, which is authenticity. I can see through when someone is trying to shape a narrative in a way that just makes them look better. You can too. And I think readers can too. And I wish there were more of a sense of vulnerability, I guess, when I'm interviewing people. I always want to say to someone, if you're telling me you did something, but I can't really figure out where your like financial motivation was, if you just did something that seemed kind of altruistic, I don't really believe you. Like I kind of have to understand that there was a really core motive and you're running a business here. And if it, you can't justify it financially, I just don't really buy it, so to speak. So I think there's an element of that. But I don't know where, where, you know, if I knew this, I would probably quit my job and become like a brand strategist for wineries because I assume there's a lot more money in that. But how do wineries convince my peers to buy expensive wine, you know, 15 years from now? When the current age group with wine buying power ages out, I don't know where California wineries go. Esther Mobley wants to find stories that she can believe. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Esther Mobley is the wine writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. 
You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Randy Dunn actually makes this amazing grape juice. If you ever go to his property, it's like Ruby Cabernet. It's like a weird grape, but it's delicious.